the best restaurant in town and spoil her and make a big fuss over her, but there's still lots of opportunity to say nice things about your mom, things that will really be treasured by her, and hopefully we can make up for it in the months to come and sort of have a delayed Mother's Day celebration. So thank you, mothers. You're, you're the best. We would be lost without you, and may God really continue to bless you. I know uh, mothers tend to worry more about things than the rest of us, and uh, so a pandemic like this weighs a lot more heavy, heavily on a mother's heart. So we just are so thankful for our mothers. We're continuing our series, uh, Rejoicing in the Ruins, and uh, today the message is entitled, Defiant Joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you for their faithfulness, even in this time of separation, that uh, they continue to trust you, continue to pray, continue to uh, find ways to relate to one another. And um, we really wouldn't be surprised if at the end of this, our church is that much stronger because of this... uh, difficult time we've been going through, that there will be a lot more uh, gratitude and joy in the fact that uh, we can meet together once again. We so look forward to that time. But in the meantime, we, we thank you that we have these means of, of connecting. Thank you for your word, and just uh, help us to enter into the joy that you invite us into. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in this series, we're discovering that even in dark and difficult days, there are trails that lead toward joy. And this is not a feeble, flickering joy that is easily extinguished by sudden gusts of wind. This is an enduring flame, the kind that you find in the oil fields, a fire that's fed by vast subterranean reserves of fuel. Last week in Psalm 23, we followed a trail that led through the shadowlands and deep into enemy territory where we experienced overflowing joy. Our cups overflow. Today we're going to continue our journey and find godly joy in some of the most unlikely places. You know, we think of joy as a a delicate plant that thrives only in favorable climates. For example, here in the mountain foothills, you won't find many palm trees or vineyards or bougainvillea plants or even blackberry bushes. It's the wrong climate zone for those species. And we assume that the botanical requirements for joy consist of the right conditions like green pastures, still waters. But godly joy is not merely indigenous to good times. You can find it flourishing in the most hostile circumstances, even in the shadowlands. And since this is Mother's Day, the first example that we're going to look at is a very remarkable mother in the book of Genesis. A few months ago, we focused on the strange saga of love and betrayal in the Old Testament involving a handsome bachelor named Jacob 
and a beautiful bachelorette named Rachel. It was a match made in heaven. And their romance didn't just last a few episodes, it continued for seven seasons, culminating in a wonderful wedding. But that's where the plot took an unexpected twist. When the director switched the bride for the maid of honor without anyone noticing. Talk about a wedding crasher. So when Jacob woke up the next morning, there was Leah. Not Rachel, but Leah. Not Rachel, whose eyes sparkled like sunlight reflecting on water. No, it was Leah who had weak eyes. Now, she was probably a good woman, honest, hardworking, but not somebody you would offer a rose. Jacob was deeply disappointed and demanded a refund. And so after some negotiations, Jacob also married Rachel. And so he had two wives, one whom he loved with all his heart, and the other one who he gradually learned to like. It was a marriage that was seriously out of balance. Everything tilted away from Leah toward Rachel. Poor Leah. But God began to restore the balance. While Rachel had trouble conceiving, Leah began to bear sons. And that improved her status significantly. But she was still a distant second from her husband's heart. Nevertheless, each birth rekindled her hope. We read in Genesis 29, beginning at verse 32, that Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too, so she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. But nothing changed. Leah was trapped in a hopeless situation. She would never know true love. And so she could never experience real joy. Poor Leah. And then something happened that changed everything. Everything except her husband. Jacob didn't change, but Leah did. Verse 35 says, She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time... I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Leah made a decision. This time, I will praise the Lord. In spite of her broken heart, in spite of her disappointment, Leah discovered an opportunity to manifest defiant joy. This time, I will praise the Lord. Whatever problems that you may be having in your family, whatever disappointments you experience in your marriage, you can either get bitter or you can do what Leah did. This time, I will praise the Lord. 
We find that same defiant joy expressed in the Psalms. For example, lucky Psalm 13, where we have a typical day in the life of David. He gets up in the morning, does his stretching exercises, and says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Well, not exactly. In Psalm 13, it begins, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? He'd had enough. It was going on too long. Four times he repeats, How long, O Lord? David was at the complaint department. He was not a satisfied customer. He was having another horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. Have you had some of those lately? During this season of quarantine and isolation and social distancing, we probably don't wake up excited, ready to seize the day. Because if I'm going to seize anything, I'm going to need some hand sanitizer first. My first thought is, oh boy, here we go again. How long, oh Lord? How long is this going to go on? You've all seen the movie Groundhog Day. Did you ever think that would happen to you? How long, oh Lord? Well, David's situation was obviously far more dangerous than ours. Savage men were stalking him. His life expectancy was best before sundown. In verse 3, Look on me and answer, O Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. My foes will rejoice. This was the last day of the rest of his life. So what does David do? Well, he decides to have a feast. Really? Sure, because joy is what? It's a table in the presence of our enemies. He was in the ideal circumstances to enjoy the presence of the Lord, to have his head anointed with oil and his cup overflowed. And so this suspenseful plot also takes an unexpected turn, the kind that could give you a whiplash. Deep in enemy territory, outnumbered and overwhelmed, David interrupts his problems with praise. So usually it's the other way around. Problems constantly interrupt us. We're having a good day and then all of a sudden a problem comes on up and it totally interrupts us. But why not do it the other way and interrupt the problem with praise? Well, that's exactly what David does. Because in the very next two verses he says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. And David also decides to exercise some defiant joy. 
That's because he doesn't need the permission of his feelings. He's not seeking the counsel of his anxieties. He doesn't require the support of favorable circumstances. David ignores all the caveats that fear has attached to his birthright and simply interrupts his problems with praise and experiences an overcoming, defiant joy. Compare verse 4 to 5. In verse 4, David envisions that his foes will rejoice. But in verse 5, he says, My heart rejoices. I trust in your unfailing love, and my heart rejoices in your salvation. How did he get to that rejoicing? The verse explains, but I trust in your unfailing love. It's interesting how trust leads directly to joy. And that's the path that we have to take. Obviously, worry doesn't move you in the direction of joy. But trust will. So set your GPS. That which, this, of course, means that you have to remember why you trust God. And when you've got that figured out, don't just stand there. Start moving down the trail until you reach the table and can experience defiant joy. My heart rejoices in your salvation. We see the same defiance in the prophet Habakkuk. Now, that's a very strange name. So if the question is Habakkuk, the correct answer is, no thanks, I'm fasting. A very strange name for a remarkable man who lived during dark and difficult days. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we hear him say this, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Where have we heard that before? How long, O Lord? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Habakkuk was seeing the, the sinful conditions in the nation of Israel, and his heart was broken, and he was wondering, why are there no consequences for this? When is God going to do something about this? And we can identify with that. We look at our broken world, which is filled with evil and injustice, even in O Canada, religious freedoms are at risk. Verse 4, therefore the law is paralyzed and injustice never, or justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. We're wondering the same thing. How come there are no consequences? When is God going to do something? Well, the problem is when God does something, it's often far more than we expected. Because God was going to punish the evildoers in Israel. Verse 5 says, the Lord's answer, Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something. I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. This is going to blow your mind. You see, the Babylon, 
Babylonian army was on its way. And Sin City, Jerusalem would become a place of rubble and ruins. God's judgment is often overwhelming. Just like this pandemic. I'm going to do something that you would not believe even if you were told. If we were told several months ago that something like this would happen, who would have believed it? God's judgments are like that. They're overwhelming. And so for years we've been praying for God to do something, but not this much. For us civilians here on Middle Earth, we, we might think that this is overkill. Habakkuk cried foul. Sure, go ahead and punish us, but not with the Babylonians. They're ten times more evil than we are. And, and if they come, they're going to destroy everything and innocent lives will be lost. We want the judgment to be more surgical, like the plagues of Egypt, where the unrighteous perished, but the righteous were spared. So time out, Lord, wait. Let's discuss this. The consensus is that the consequences of sin should be more like this much, not like that much. Sometimes God's judgments involve significant collateral damage. The innocent suffer along with the guilty. And when Habakkuk realized the full consequences of these tragic and traumatic events, he was so overwhelmed that he could do only one thing. He found the path that led to the watchtower overlooking his vineyard. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts, and I will look and see what he will say to me. Instead of trying to evaluate what God was doing and giving him advice, Habakkuk became still before God and listened and worshipped. Chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That's what we need to do when all hell breaks loose. That's what Psalm 46 talks about. Be still and know that I am God. Let all the earth be silent before him. And when Habakkuk did that, his attitude began to change. And he knew what he had to do. He stopped giving God advice. He stopped evaluating God's performance and became silent. You know, sometimes in our minds we treat God like he's a contestant in the Olympics. We act as if we're the judges who rate his performance by holding up scorecards. 3.2, 2.8, 2.4. But Habakkuk humbles himself and says, let all the earth be silent before him. And that's exactly the opposite of what we see happening during this pandemic. We have all the noise coming at us from press conferences, from reporters interviewing experts 24-7. There's so much noise and confusion abounds. If only we could get to the place that Habakkuk did. 
The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And that's what helped Habakkuk find his way to defiant joy. Because in chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, he says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk is looking at a total economic collapse. No figs, no grapes, no olive crops, no food on the fields, no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, total economic collapse. Which is something we're wondering about. What's going to happen to our economy? Well, Habakkuk was facing events even more terrible than what we're currently enduring. But instead of trying to interfere with God's business, instead of giving him all kinds of advice, he worshipped with defiant joy and said, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will be joyful in God my Savior. That is truly impressive. This is something we also find happening in the book of Revelation. John John's visions predict terrible judgments that are to come in the last days, at the end of the age. That might be in the year 2525. Stops trying to protect us from ourselves and simply lets nature take its course. That's when God says, so, you believe in evolution? You think it's all about natural selection? Well, Let's find out what that looks like. And that's when all hell breaks loose. You see, there's really only two options for us here on earth. Either it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, or it's survival of the fittest. And if you go with that option, ultimately there will be all kinds of disasters. And the book of Revelation describes great tragedies and tribulations that are the consequence of human sin. There's fire and smoke and plagues and cries of anguish. So you would not expect to find any joy in Revelation. And yet it contains some of the greatest worship events since the dawn of creation. There is so much rejoicing in Revelation. For example... Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. That's not the theory of evolution. Chapter 5, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Chapter 7, verse 12. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor 
and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your, to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. Chapter 19, verses 5 to 7. It says in verse 6, When I heard the sound like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. We need to know that even in a time of judgment, that there are paths that lead to dynamic, defiant joy. In a time of judgment, a lot of people will be complaining and talking about how God is mismanaging things and, and not doing it properly. He's overdoing things. But those who consider his judgments just will experience joy. And these paths that lead to that joy are not difficult to find. These paths are well-trodden. In fact, for centuries, hundreds of millions have walked these trails in the direction of a great celebration. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about with his disciples in John 16, beginning at verse 20, when he said, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is the time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Like the disciples, we still live in a world that has rejected Jesus. We live in a culture that despises him. Most of our contemporaries are ashamed of Jesus, offended even at the mention of his name. And they will ridicule him and laugh and laugh. And that has caused us great anguish. It hurts their blasphemy stabs like a knife. And we watch helplessly as so-called progressive politics moves our society deeper into decadence, further into darkness, away from the light of God. And that makes us grieve. Indeed, we weep and mourn while the world rejoices. But one day our grief will turn to joy because he will return as he promised. Jesus said, I will see you again, and then we will rejoice, and no one will take away our joy. That's exactly what happened to the disciples. When Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection, they had a joy that could not be taken away. That joy continued with them until they were martyred and killed and slaughtered. Even that could not remove their joy. 
No one could take it away because they saw him again. We too know that that is the ultimate source of joy, seeing Jesus. And we don't have to wait until he returns. In fact, every time we see Jesus, we have the opportunity to rejoice. As Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are invited to fix our eyes on Jesus because whenever we see him, we rejoice. And that is a joy that no one can take away. Meanwhile, we will, like him, endure our cross and we will scorn its shame because of the joy that's set before us, the joy of salvation, the joy of eternal life, the joy of seeing Jesus. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's easy to get weary and lose heart during these days. We wonder, how long is this going to go on? But that's because we, we keep listening to all the noise. That's because we're distracted from our Lord and Savior. If we fix our eyes on him, we also can see the joy that's set before us, the joy that is coming. And that's why we do not grow weary. That's why we do not lose heart. Because even in dark and difficult days, there are trails that lead us to the one who is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus Christ. And it's simply a matter of this. If no one can take Jesus away, then no one can take away our joy because our joy is in him. Let's pray. Father, much has been taken from us during this time of uh, pandemic. We've lost a lot of freedoms. We lost a lot of opportunities for joy. We're not traveling. We're not getting out that much. We can't even celebrate Mother's Day the way we'd like to. Much has been taken from us. But instead of feeling sorry for ourselves, instead of feeling weary and losing heart, we want to focus on what cannot be taken away from us. No one can take Jesus away. And therefore, no one can take away our joy because our joy is in him. May we remember that and focus on that in the days ahead. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.